Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. So it's nice to be among you guys, and thank you for trusting me with your lunchtime, and pray that God will be glorified, right? So we're in Genesis chapter 16 now. We're getting there. We're through another chapter. Last week we finished Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 being one of the most important chapters of the book and also one of the most important chapters of the Bible. Genesis chapter 15 having to do with God's promises to Abram and um, putting those in covenant form. And you saw that in the first part of the chapter was God's promise of of descendants to Abram and then the (laughs) second part of the chapter having to do with God's promise of land. So now time is moving on. In Genesis chapter 16, we got up to verse 1, and that's where we ended last time. Somebody mind reading verse 1 today? Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. So this is as far as we got last week. With the passage of time now, it's now 10 years. 10 years since chapter 12. 10 years since they've been in the land. All right. Abram was 75 at that time. He's 85 years old now. Sarai is 75 now. If you could imagine with me the importance of having children back then. It was not an option for a woman to become a wife and not provide children for her husband. All right. That was not permissible. That was not well received. If a husband and wife, a newlywed, as time goes on, if there isn't a child that's produced by the woman, it was the woman who bore the blame. It was shameful. There was disdain. There was disgust. They were considered cursed by God. You know, we we don't know what age they were when they got married. It was most likely back in Ur of the Chaldees. That was a long time ago. Back in Ur of the Chaldees, they get married. Time goes on. She's not able to produce children. She's barren. And perhaps her neighbors and perhaps her friends, disgusted with her, uh, wanting to take a uh, hands-off approach, stay away from her. She must be cursed by God. She's not able to have kids. You know what? When the opportunity came to move to Haran, she was probably okay with that. You know? She was probably like, you know what? I'm not welcome here. I mean, we're reading between the lines a little bit. But it was, it was something that was disgraceful. It was shameful. There was suspicion. Perhaps you maybe were involved in indecent behavior, and that's why the gods were judging you. And so when the proposal was made to move from Ur of the Chaldees to Haran, she was probably okay with that. And then later to move from there to Canaan, she was probably okay with that because you get a fresh start. You get a new start. You know, now I want to move you know, to where people don't know and where people aren't going to hold this against me or, you know, at least give me a a new start. Well, time's gone by. She's not getting any younger. She's 65 years old, and and her window of opportunity to have kids, that's closing. And she's probably feeling a little panicked. And now, being 10 years since Genesis chapter 12, God appeared to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, said, you're going to have kids. 
God has appeared to Abram repeatedly and said, you're going to have kids. And now we get to Genesis chapter 16, and there's still no kids. And what's interesting is those promises that you find are made to Abram. They don't mention Sarai. And perhaps she's starting to be uh, somewhat panicked that in fear she's going to start making some decisions. Maybe when God appeared to my husband, maybe I wasn't part of the equation. Maybe it's not my body that's supposed to have kids. And so we have this introduction in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. We talked a little bit last week. Where did Hagar come from? It was probably a gift given them back when they went to Egypt in that chapter where there wasn't a whole lot of seeking God's direction. When there wasn't a whole lot of asking God, what should we do? It, it sounds more like in that chapter it was, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's go down to Egypt. It sounds like it was a plan devised by man without seeking God's direction. So while they were in Egypt, it was probably, Hagar was either a gift probably to Abram by Pharaoh at that time for taking his, what he thought was his sister, or could have been a gift given to Sarai and saying, oh, okay, you're going to be in my harem. This is going to be your personal attendant or your maid. Uh, or it could have even gone farther back in time, perhaps as a dowry that was given back in Ur or in Haran, wherever they ended up getting married, back in Ur of the Chaldees, most likely. So fast forward 10 years since that chapter 12 time in 65 years as her age now, and it doesn't look like she's going to be able to have children. And in some sort of a panic, she ends up taking Hagar. In verse 2, it says, So Sarai said to Abram, See, now the Lord has restrained me. She's blaming God. You catch that? For her barrenness. See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please. This word is interesting where she uses this word please here. The last time this word was used, the Hebrew word behind this English equivalent of please, was when Abram said to her, please pretend you're my sister. And put her in a spot that got them in trouble. Now the word's on her lips. Asking a favor of him putting him in a spot that's going to get them in trouble. Please go into my maid, speaking or referring to Hagar, please go into my maid, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Back then the situation was if you had a personal assistant, if you had a maid, in this case Hagar being the maid for Sarai, this is above the common slave um, category. Okay, So this is she's not saying pick one of the slaves among our clan. She's saying pick my personal attendant. And please have children through her. And the arrangement back then, we read that and we go, oh my goodness, what a misguided decision this was, you know. Back then, culturally, this was acceptable. Back then, culturally, this was expected. In fact, there's a rabbinic tradition as to when you get to the point where it says that they've been in the land for 10 years, the rabbinic tradition is 10 years was the amount of time that a wife was given to give an opportunity to give children. And if they didn't, you were in your justification to divorce her, to get rid of her. And it could be out of desperation with that being the cultural norm that Sarah is maybe trying, thinking to herself, it'd be better for me to give my maid and, and still have a place in this family than to find out I'm out, you know. So it, that's, a, that's a possibility. So she gives her maid, she gives Hagar over to Abram 
to have children for her. And the status being the situation back then, any child that Hagar would have, if she was to get pregnant, any child that she would produce would be counted as Sarai's child. All right? Again, culturally acceptable at that time. It's interesting because they have actually ancient documents that they've found. There's Hammurabi's Code, there's the Nuzi text, uh, an old Assyrian marriage contract, and a Neo-Assyrian text. Four different ancient documents that all talk about this and talk about this situation and address what to do when a woman can't produce a child for her husband. And like I said, divorce was an option. Another one was to present. Uh, it was up to the woman to go find and secure another woman to bear children on her, on her behalf, a surrogate. And then the end of that verse in verse 2, and Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Abram heeded the voice of Sarah. That wording there, the Hebrew behind that word, is the same word when Adam heeded his wife, Eve, in the garden. Turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. The indictment upon Adam for heeding his wife in that situation. Who is speaking in chapter 3, verse 17? God is speaking. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. So here we have that same word that's being there, used there by God, indicting Adam for heeding his wife. Is the same word here that the author is in, perhaps indicting Abram for heeding his wife here. Now, I'm not trying to speak on marital relations here. I'm just saying that perhaps the author is saying something else could have been done. I don't know. Maybe ask God for guidance. Maybe ask God for direction. So Sarai is getting desperate here. So Sarai ends up giving her maid over to Abram. And in fact, the wording there that's used in verse 2 says, See, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children. It's confirming that what we know from ancient history and what we found, that the child's going to be counted as Sarai's. Okay? And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Go to verse 3. Somebody mind reading verse 3? So after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar to the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. This is not the only time you're going to run across in the Bible where a woman is being given over to a husband to have children on behalf of the wife. Okay, It comes up in other times. In fact, one of the themes of Genesis is this desire for children, this quest for children, especially a male child. And so this is just kind of setting the standard for that. We've also, we actually also saw it already with Adam and Eve when they uh, desired to have a child after Cain. So this quest for children is going to be a theme that you're going to see more and more. I should say also that Hagar's status is elevated in this decision. There's almost a, a legal ramification in the sense. When Sarai gives Hagar over to Abram, Hagar's status is elevated. Now, she's, she's still subservient to Sarai, but she's still well above the common class of slaves and elevated within within that. So she's now being you know, given over as a wife to Abram, and the authority over her transfers to Abram from Sarai. She was under the authority of Sarai until this point where she gives Hagar over, and now she's under the authority of Abram. One of these things that you find in these relationships where a woman is given over to the husband to have children on her behalf is that you see that there's nothing but difficulties 
and frustrations that seem to come out of these things. It's never actually encouraged in the Bible. This is not the pattern that God has in mind for us. The pattern that God has in mind for us, you can find that in Genesis. It's a, it's a husband and a wife. It's a one and one thing. It's not a one and two or one and 20 or one and whatever. God intended marriage to be between a man and a woman, not between a man and multiple women. This is also something that you see that it becomes a threat to the family, and and Sarah is starting to pick up on that. We're going to see that more as the verses go on. Like I said earlier as well, she's now 75 years old. He's 85, and the interesting thing is it's been a while. It's been 10 years since God made that initial promise. That's a long time. If you're waiting on a promise of God and 10 years goes by, that's a long time, but you know what? God's still going to have them wait another 15 years from this point. 25 years. 25 years from the point God says, I promise, and the point that it happens. Esther, you look like you want to say something. That is a long time. That's a big chunk of life right there. You know what? God's timeline is a little bit different than our timeline. We want things and we want it now. Over there on the table is a microwave. We want it now. And I tell you what, isn't that the case in society? I, uh, I go to places and I hate traffic because I don't like to wait. I don't like going to amusement parks because every ride has a long line. You know, we're so conditioned to not wait. But the message of the Bible is we need to wait on God. We need to be patient. And that just goes against what we're so conditioned to experience. So here it's 10 years. They got another 15 to go before God follows through on his promises. But I tell you what, A, his timing is perfect. And B, he does follow through. It's not like God goes, oh, rats, I forgot. (laughs) Let's get back to them. Quick, give them a kid. (laughs) You know, it's not that at all. God knows what he's doing. His timing is perfect, and he follows through on his commitments. Verse 4, somebody mind reading that. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Excellent. Thank you, Devon. Here we have a situation. If you can imagine what this looks like. Right, Abram's been promised, and for 10 years he's been carrying this promise of children. Longer than that, he's probably been desiring children. All this time, Sarai is feeling the pressure on her. Produce children, produce children. Whether or not that's coming directly and vocally from Abram, you know, it doesn't seem like that's the relationship they have that he's pressuring her. But imagine Abram finding out that Hagar's pregnant. Because now, perhaps in his mind, he's thinking, all right, I'm going to have a kid. All right. This is the promise God's been speaking of. This is great. And I imagine that the situation is probably as Hagar would walk through the room, that maybe Abram's countenance would lighten up. Oh, how's the carrier of my baby doing today? Oh, look, it's getting bigger. You know? And there's probably a little gloating going on, you know, on Hagar's part. There's probably a little something going on that Hagar perceives as a threat to the family, a threat to her status. And in fact, it says here, when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. There's a negative interaction going on now between Hagar and Sarai. What she thought, what Sarai thought was a good idea, a good solution to this problem, turns out to be a bad solution Uh, So Hagar's self-image probably seems to be improving. Um, Abram's probably delighting a little bit too much in Hagar, and so much so that there's a jealousy that's growing in Sarai. 
you know, Sarah, I probably was just hoping that, you know, the intention was just to have a kid, but it didn't, she didn't realize or didn't anticipate the tension that was going to be growing in this. And now this, because of the status of motherhood being what it was, now that Hagar's pregnant and Sarai's not, there's almost a reversal of sorts as to who gets honored in this relationship the most. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 21 through 23 says, Under these three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. And at the end of the list of those four, it's a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. And here we have Hagar, the maidservant, who seems to be displacing her mistress, Sarai. And in fact, the words used over there in Proverbs made for maidservant and mistress are the exact same words being used to describe Hagar and Sarah here in this, in this story. There's an emotional price that's being paid by Sarai for this decision to solve the problem the way she thought conventional wisdom would say. There's a price to us, too, when we go with what society would say is normal and right, when we go with what would be acceptable or even expected in society against maybe what the plan of God is. I'm going to say something now that's probably not going to be very popular. I'm going to say something now that's probably going to ostracize some people. But I was trying to think of a, a correlation of what maybe in society we're used to. Like in this situation, this was a, a situation they were used to. Oh, just take Hagar, just take your maid, just give her over. And, and, and we read that removed by several thousand years and we go, that's a bad choice. Can't you see that's a bad choice? But back then, society said that was fine. In our lives today, we have a situation where in World War II, a lot of our men went off to war. And a lot of our women were required to work. It was a requirement just for the survival of our country. It was a requirement for the survival of families. But at the end of the war, when the men came back, what happened was you had this situation where there needed to be a choice that needed to be made. And they found because the women were working that you could have dual incomes now. You could afford to buy things that the family that lived next door to you couldn't buy when the woman wasn't going to work when the woman was going to stay home and raise her kids. In this situation in America where it's gotten today, it's gotten to be such that it's almost a requirement for a woman to work. In a marriage relationship, it's almost a requirement for a man and a woman to work just to get by. And we see that especially here in Southern California. So everything's so expensive. Housing is so expensive. Food and everything. To be able to make ends meet, it almost requires a man and a woman who are married together to both be working and what do you do with the children? Take them to somebody else. Take them to daycare. Take them here. Take them there. Let somebody else raise my kids for me so that we can make ends meet. As a society, we've made a choice that I think someday, should God tarry, people are going to look back and go, that was a bad choice. <laughs> that somebody would say, can't you see how bad a choice that is? That we as a country have gotten to the place where we've decided that for a mom to not stay home and raise her kids... As a country, that we've demanded that of our, our families, that's a bad choice. And so if we have that choice, if we have the opportunity for a mom to stay home and raise her kids, that's the choice that should be made. Nobody can raise your kids better than you. But I get it. We've gotten to the point where we've almost made that so that people can't make that choice anymore. So in situations or in relationships where, where they're put in that space where they can't make that choice anymore, that breaks my heart. But for the ones that can, if there is a person who can and they choose, they choose 
to send their kids to somebody else. They choose to pursue a career because they want fulfillment at, in a work location. You know, when they choose to abandon their kids to somebody else raising their kids and, and go the route of climbing the corporate ladder or whatever it might be, that's a bad choice. You know, it's our generation. We've gotten used to it. This might be conventional wisdom saying that's fine, but we serve an unconventional God. Our God says, you know what? I have a different standard. <laughs> and my standard is for kids to be raised by moms and dads. My, my standard is that they be raised by their parents, you know, as opposed to being sent to a, an institution for kids that they grow there. All right, so that's, that's me stepping on a bunch of toes. <laughs> All right, if you, get, if you get what I'm saying. So this situation in Sarah and Abram's situation, you know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Proverbs 14, 12 ends up saying that. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. In this situation, we see, I'm sure in their eyes, it seemed right at the time, but it's not leading to anything good. The Hebrew word there behind, if you look in that verse again, if you look in that verse for despised, her mistress became despised in her eyes. All right. Any other translations have something different there besides despised? ESV, maybe? Contempt. Contempt. Despised or contempt. The Hebrew word is kalal. Kalal. That word there, the last time it actually appeared was over in Genesis chapter 12. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Pretty significant place. This is where God first appeared to Abram that we have record of. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who kalal you. I will curse those who curse you. I will curse those who kalal you. It's the same word here. Hagar is doing this to Sarai. And Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, already tells us that's not going to turn out well. <laughs> All right? That is not going to turn out well. Genesis chapter 16, verse 5. Somebody mind reading Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. And Sarah said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. So Sarah seems to be taking it well. <laughs> maybe, maybe not <laughs> that word there that's uh, translated wrong in English in Hebrew the word is Hamas or Hamas another place that that word actually shows up or it's translated uh, sometimes translated as violence it's the word that's used over in Genesis chapter 6 verses 11 and 13 somebody might reading chapter 6 verse 11 listen for the word violence ask yourself who's talking and to whom is he talking the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Who's speaking in that passage? God. God is speaking in that passage. And to whom is he speaking? Noah. In verse 13, in Noah. He's speaking to Noah. So God is speaking to Noah in that passage. And what is he saying is coming? <laughs> He doesn't specify, but we know what the story is, right? The flood's coming. The judgment of the entire world. What's the word that's used in each of those verses there as for the reason for the judgment of God is coming upon the world? It's the violence. It's the Hamas. That word Hamas, the reason that God destroyed the world, 
that's what that's what Sarai is saying is an issue with Hagar. She's saying this wrong be upon you, this Hamas be upon you. She's saying to her husband, this violence, that same word that's used for the destruction of the earth. All right. Uh, the reason for the destruction of the earth is the same word she's using here to say that's what this situation is like. This situation is so out of control, <laughs> and I'm putting it on your shoulders. She's telling to Abram, ah, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. She's not happy right now. Verse 6, somebody mind reading verse 6. So Abram said to Sarah, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Excellent. Thank you, Abel. This phrase that you did, you catch that in verse six, the phrase where he says, indeed, your maid is in your hand. In your hand is a pair or a partner or a bookend to the phrase that was used of Sarai. I gave her into your embrace. I gave her into your arms. I gave her into your hand. And Abram saying, okay, then you know what? I give her back into your hand. All right, so there's a play on words going on there. So she's saying, I give her into your embrace, you know, and he's saying, then I turn her back over to you. And legally, he's actually turning over Hagar's well-being back under the authority of Sarai. He's transferring that authority back to Sarai to treat her as she wishes. Now, there is one commentator that said, no, no, this means he's turning her over not to do anything that she wants to Hagar, but to treat her well, turning her back over to treat her well. But the other commentators are not willing to go that far. And you find from the rest of the verse, no, it's dealt harshly. You see that there's a dealt harshly going on there. This dealt harshly that the New King James Version shows, it's the same word that's used to describe what the Israelites experienced under the Egyptians in Egypt during their captivity in the 400 years there of mistreatment as slaves in Egypt. So it's interesting here you have you have a Hebrew mistreating an Egyptian and that same word is being used later to describe an Egyptian group mistreating a Hebrew group using the same word. So it's kind of a, a reversal of a picture that's coming later. You also find in, in this verse here, Abram seems to be just hoping this, that the matter will go away. He seems to be hoping that it'll, this will all just fade. It'll all just go away. Um, that might be what, what the author is indicting him for, that maybe he's not taking upon himself as much of a leadership role as he should be. And one of the things that we learn here as well in this passage is that the Bible often shows us its best characters in their worst light. And it's these types of pictures that give us hope, right? <laughs> because if we only saw them in their best, if we only saw them in their perfections and, and making great decisions, we might feel like we don't measure up or that God can't use us or that we're not of the caliber of people that God is used to bringing about his plan through. No, we read this and we find out, boy, that guy's messed up. That was messed up, Sarah. Where'd you come up with that plan? And we go, oh, man, that sounds a lot like me. Well, you know what? Maybe that should give us hope. That if God can use somebody in that situation, maybe he can use me as well. All right. So some of the key points from today's lesson, if I could just distill it down to this. Number one, conventional wisdom versus an unconventional God. What society tells you is okay to do, what society says, oh, yeah, that's fine, go ahead and do it, may not be the pattern that God has for us. Proverbs 3, 5 reminds us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Leaning on our own understanding would be going to our friends who don't know God and saying, what should I do in this situation? Leaning on our own understanding might be, hmm, what do, what do my relatives do in these situations when they get into this kind of a bind? And looking for solutions outside of God's word. No, God's word prescribes for you the remedy, and that is trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not 
on your own understanding. Sarai and Abram doesn't sound like they did seeking God in this situation. It sounds like Sarai came up with this on her own, using the cultural norms of the day to influence the decision, and what a bad decision it turned out to be. Number two, we should be seeking God's guidance. Along with that, Proverbs 3, 5, the, the next verse is Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. It doesn't sound like they acknowledged him. We don't have any clear indication that they sought God's direction in prayer and that God answered by saying, Hey, Sarai, why don't you go ahead and give Hagar over to Abram? That doesn't seem to be the case at all. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding as a, as a passage that has to do with conventional wisdom versus our own conventional God. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Proverbs 3, 6 in seeking God's guidance. Number three out of four, his timing. We need to wait. We need to be patient. So many verses in the Bible would encourage us. I've just picked one. Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. His timing is not our timing. His ways are not our ways. They're so much higher than our ways. And too often we trust in our own way of trying to figure things out, and we trust in our own reckoning of what is good timing, and we miss out on God's perfection for us. His timing. We need to wait. And number four, we saw this with Sarai. Don't make decisions based on fear. How many times do we make panicky, last-minute decisions based on fear, as Sarai did here? A verse to address that, Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. Be fearful for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Fear and worry is, it should not have this strong of a grip on our lives. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. We thank you that your word addresses so many issues. We thank you, Lord, that we hold in our hands the written experiences of so many people who tried and failed in trying to work their way through, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a manual. You've given us a book we have at our disposal, your word, which we can benefit by reading and seeing what worked and what didn't. And, Lord, that, hey, number one priority, you are trustworthy. We can wait on you. We can be patient. We can know that... Your ways are not our ways, and they might not make sense, but Lord, just saying, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I trust you. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I trust you. I don't know when you're going to do it, but I trust you. I don't see any possible way that this mountain can be moved, and Lord, you move mountains. Thank you, God, that you show a pattern for us that we can see, and we can, we can take courage as we step forward in our uh, next day and the day after that. Lead us and guide us, we pray. Help us, Lord, to be seeking your direction. Help us, Lord, to be trusting in you and not in our own understanding. Go with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.